And I want to go ahead and say to you before we get into the sermon, um, sometimes scripture separates, segregates, if you will, a particular topic for the purpose of examining it more closely. So this morning, some of you will think, well, it's a word to the wives. I could, I can check out today. I'm single. I'm a male. I can just relax. Well, I'd, I'd like to encourage you that while you may be listening on the outside in some sense, um, listening in, I hope that before the sermon is done, you will realize that the realities that we're discussing here are ones that require all of us as a body to be helping one another. What I hope we begin to see through these household codes of Ephesians, that in order to be a godly wife, in order to be a godly husband, in order to be godly children, in order to be godly workers, we cannot go it alone. So while it is a word to the wives this morning, do not somehow think that that just is indifferent to you. If you have made it to Ephesians chapter 5, would you stand as we read from God's holy word? Beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. It is holy. It is inspired. It cuts through to the deepest parts of our heart and exposes us. But in exposing us, Lord, your word also offers a salve for wounded, exposed hearts. So, Lord, I pray today that by your spirit, you would expose us, you would lay us bare, and you would bring the balm of Gilead, the gospel, to fill, to soothe, to comfort. Give us faith to believe. We pray this day in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to go ahead and forewarn parents that if you, uh, if you have a child that has never seen the movie Ella Enchanted, that at the end of the sermon you'll probably want to put your ears, your hands over their ears because I don't want to ruin the ending for you. But I'm going to begin this morning with telling you about a little movie called Ella Enchanted. It's a fascinating little movie. Anne Hathaway stars in it. And, and uh, actually it's one of those good movies that if you haven't watched it, it's fun as a dad to watch with the little girls. It's a, it's a fairy tale movie and it's fun. But here's the, here's the twist of Ella Enchanted. Ella's born as a little baby and a spell is cast on her. And the spell that's cast on her is, is that she always has to obey. So whenever Ella is told, Ella do this, Ella do that, whether Ella wants to or not, Ella's system immediately snaps to, and she goes to do whatever she's told. Ella is always obedient. Now the question is, is what Paul is talking about today, about wives being turned into Ella Enchanted? Is that really what Paul's after? Is he after people who basically, when the man says, 
Hop two, you ask how high. Is that really what Paul's after? Or is Paul really going after something much deeper? Because see, look here at this. Nothing about the motivational structure, the core values of Ella's heart were touched by this spell. Oftentimes she was doing things she did not want to do. Her mother would say, Ella, have you practiced your violin? And Ella would say, no, Ella, practice your violin. And whether Ella wanted to practice her violin or not, she immediately had to snap to and go practice her violin. So what I want you to begin to think about is, is that what is the reality that Paul is after here, that, that Paul is laying before us as we consider what it means to be a submissive wife. The truth is, is that while, that some people would actually think that would be great. There are some people, and I know it's hard to believe, there are probably some women who really the idea of not having to think a whole lot about do this, do that, do the other would be great if you could just do it and just be done with it. So you don't have to think about it. didn't have to wrestle with it. For other women, the whole idea of that it just is overbearing at best and oppressive if you really think about it. The idea that every time you were told to do something, you just did it, whether you wanted to or not. And what I want to begin to think about here is, is this, that Scripture does not call women to be mindless serfs. It's not what it calls women to. Scripture calls women to be thoughtful, wise, courageous agents of gospel grace and gospel peace. A woman is to bring an aroma of grace and peace into her home. And if she would be submissive, that has to be the goal, that grace and peace would be permeating her home. And so I think that Paul begins to give us an understanding of what that looks like and how that operates. The first thing I want us to look at then is the order that Paul is talking about. You could go to 1 Corinthians 11 and it gives you a very clear outline. It says that the man is the head of the woman, as Christ is the head of the man, as God the Father is the head of Christ. And so we see an order, but here we see an order as well, and I want us to begin to understand that. The first thing I want you to see here is it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands. That's very important for us to hear this because what I want to say emphatically is is that too often in the church of Jesus Christ male headship has been turned into male domination as if somehow because you're male you have a right to tell women what to do you don't you do not have a right to tell women what to do but a husband does have the responsibility to lead his wife. And what Paul is saying is a wife does have the obligation and responsibility to listen and follow her husband. Her husband. I think sometimes a lot of problems get raised in churches because too many other would-be helpers tend to want to get involved into what's happening in people's homes. The reality is, is that every husband in this room has an obligation to lead his wife. But as Paul looks at it here, every wife has an obligation to follow her husband. That means that it's unhelpful for you to look at other people's lives and say, well, why can't we be more like that? 
There's a lot of reasons why. You're not that woman, for starters. That man's not your husband. You may not have certain temporal blessings that other people have, or you may have temporal blessings that other people don't have. There's all kinds of reasons why we need to be very careful before we start setting up people as the paragon of the godly marriage instead of being an example of a godly marriage. And understand the difference. There are many people you can look at and say, those people have a godly marriage. And there are things about that that I want to emulate in my life. But we need to be very careful that we don't set any human marriage up as the godly example. This is the way marriage ought to be done. Because the reality is, is that there is great diversity, even in a room like this, of personality, of disposition, of calling, invocation, all types of things which bring all types of circumstances to bear, which is why we see the wisdom of Scripture when it says, wives, submit to your husband, because you're the ones living that life. You're the ones called to be one. You're the ones called into that reality. That should never be creating this isolated two to the exclusion of everything and everybody else. Of course wisdom is had in a multitude of counselors. Of course there is value for wives to be with other women, to encourage them, to help them think through things. Of course it's good for men to be with other men. Of course it's good for us to be together as a corporate body. We benefit from it. But I want you to understand clearly that the example that's being given here is, is that wives are submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. Husbands themselves only have authority derivatively. No man has authority in himself. You're not the man, and that's why it should be done that way. You are a servant of the living God. And a wife should submit herself to that man because he's been given a calling. And this is why, men and women, you should think long and hard if you're single exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. It might be better just to stay as you are if you can bear it. Because the reality is, is that being married requires a sacrifice, requires for a woman a willingness to say, not my will, but that guy sitting next to me's will be done. That's a hard word. That's a hard reality. But we're going to talk about the fact that there's no way to get around that reality. That a wife is called to submit herself to her husband as to the Lord. Just like the church is called to submit to Christ. In everything. And so let's move then to the second point I was to look at is this the calling. Wives, if you look there in this passage, it says this it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, verse 23, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So, what's your calling? To submit to your husband in everything. Now, immediately, some of you are going to start to say, 
But wait a minute. And we'll get to that in just a second. I want you to hear this, though. What does the church have a right to say to Jesus? I'm not sure we want to go that route. Jesus, I'm not sure that's the path we ought to take. I mean, if you really think about what's being said here, it says this. A submissive wife views her husband like the church views Christ. And that's why I said it so strongly when I said, not my will, but his will be done. Because there is a sense in which what a woman is doing in her calling is saying, I'm going to submit myself to this man and do what he believes we ought to do. Now, what does that do? That's scary. If it's not, in some sense, scary, you haven't really thought about what's being asked of you. In fact, what I would suggest is it should come to such a point that you, you should say, like the disciples, who is able to endure this? Who is able? Who is able to do that? I want you to think about this. A woman is to show forth in her marriage what the church is to show forth in its corporate witness to Christ. If the church is always doing its own will, getting its own way, always deciding to go where it wants to go, rather than really seeking to follow Christ and the leaders that Christ has placed over it, how can that church possibly lay out a witness to the community around it? And in the same way, how can a wife lay out a witness to the people around her, her own children, to her husband, to other people in her family, to other people in her neighborhood and her community, and whatever else she might find herself. The reality is, is that Christ is saying, the church is my witness. They witness to me. And so you see that a wife has the opportunity and the responsibility to witness submissively her willingness to follow her husband even as the church is to willingly, submissively follow Christ. Now there's the two things I want to get out for you before we look at the dilemma. There's an order of things. There's a calling. And I want you to feel the weight of it. I really want you to understand, women, this is a hard saying. And I can tell you as a man standing up here saying it to you that if I was just merely standing up here as a man, I wouldn't be standing up here. But I'm obligated as Christ's servant to come and say, here's what your Savior says to you. But you need to come to a place where you really understand the weight of it. You really see this is amazingly difficult if I would really do what Scripture is saying. Because too many of us have the ability to be Pharisees and to say, I am a submissive woman. And I would challenge you to really look more deeply. And that's not to say that older women, hopefully by God's grace, I've seen it happen that as women get older and as they've grown in their love of Jesus, as they've grown in these things, in some ways it does become more a normative way of life. Praise the Lord. But that doesn't take away the hardship, the reality of it. So let's get down to the dilemma. 
you might ask yourself, how can I submit to a man who is foolish and fallible? And any man in this room who says, I've never been foolish and I'm certainly not fallible, we have bigger problems to discuss. See me after the service right up front here. So here's a wife. How do I submit to this man who sometimes plays the fool? Or maybe he just really is a fool. And he certainly is fallible. How do I do that? What if he's asking us to do things that are just outrageously unreasonable? No other person on the planet would think that was reasonable. In fact, I've asked most of them. <laughs> Which may in itself be a problem. If you're struggling with submission, isn't our heart's tendency to always go and find those people that will look and say, agree with us and say, that's pretty unreasonable. That's pretty ridiculous. What a fool. But I want us to look at a place that hopefully will be helpful to us. If you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25, we find just such an issue going on in Scripture. And I hope as we look at this, it will give us some insight back into Ephesians. That's our hope. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a pew Bible there, and I'm going to read several different spots, so it might be helpful for you if you uh, don't have a Bible to turn there to 1 Samuel chapter 25. If you have it, you can look up. Okay, beginning in verse 2, I want us to look, and it's actually the end of verse 1. It says, Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, the name of his wife Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. And I want to say this very quickly because I want you to hear this. It's significant that Scripture lets you know he was a Calebite because if you remember, Caleb and Joshua were the only two men when they went in to spy out the land who said, let's trust the Lord, go in and take the land. Here's the tragedy. Here's a descendant of Caleb's who's an absolute opposite of his, of his ancestor. I don't know how far back it goes, but it doesn't go back very far. It's probably a great-grandfather. The point here to say is, is that the Scripture is trying to draw out this conclusion that just because you come out of good stock doesn't mean you're going to be good stock. And Nabal is proof positive. He is a fool. And here's Abigail married to him. Now we have to realize in the context of this that Abigail probably had no choice in the matter. Most marriages back in this day were arranged marriages, and so most likely Abigail, this man was a wealthy man, her family was probably part of that socioeconomic class. When Abigail got to be 12, 13, 14, 15, she was betrothed to this man, and she'd been his wife. And here she was, a discerning, beautiful woman, married to a fool. How do you serve a fool? We read on, and I'm going to skip some aspects of this. What we see here is that David basically goes up with his men. He's being chased by Saul. He's been anointed of the Lord. He's wandering in the wilderness. He comes and he cares for this man's sheep. And it comes time 
that normally what would happen in these days is that when a man had, had people that had kind of bodyguarded his sheep, what they would do is they would uh, celebrate a big feast after the sheep shearing was completed, and they would invite these people because obviously they'd received benefit. They didn't have to do it, but it certainly was a very normative, common, courteous thing to do. But we see that Nabal is neither common nor courteous. He's pretty much a rare find and a rare breed of man, a fool. And so what happens then is that in verse 13, this happens. The men, David sends his servants. They say, he, Nabal says, I won't give them anything. And what we know is this. Nabal knows that David is the Lord's anointed. He knows why David's running from Saul. He rejects David. He rejects David's men. And he says, and so David responds and he says, verse 13, And David said to his men, Every man strapped on his sword, and every, every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Do you hear that? I want you to hear how bad this is. Abigail is married to a man that you can't even have a conversation with him that would actually do him good. He's determined to do his own thing. Then, verse 18, Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five says of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Obviously, she's not submissive, right? Didn't she hear Nabal? We're not feeding that desert rat David. But she gets food prepared and sends it after him. And she comes herself. Now, I'm not going to read any more of it because I want to draw it to a conclusion and I want you to hear what's happened. I realize that this is great fodder. Every time this passage is read, the great debate begins with, was Abigail submissive or was she not submissive? Did she do this? Did she do that? Did she do the other? I would love for you, before I conclude this story, to think about Sapphira in the book of Acts. She was an incredibly submissive wife to Ananias. They both got killed by the Holy Spirit. She did what her husband planned to do. She was in complete agreement with it. She kept up appearances the whole time. So being, quote-unquote, externally submissive, looking like you're being submissive, is not necessarily really being submissive. What we see in Abigail is this. A woman who basically says, my husband is a fool and his folly is going to cost him his life along with his heritage. And here's the Lord's anointed, the one that God has set apart as his king, and he is being the fool because he was provoked by a fool. Here's the submissive wife, Abigail, who basically shows you Christ. She is Christ in this story. That's why she's there. Because what does she do? She basically puts herself in harm's way to do her husband good. She puts herself in harm's way 
despite his foolishness, to spare his life, but to also protect this good man from being provoked into foolishness by her foolish husband. Think about Proverbs. Do not rebuke a fool in his folly. And you see, David was held determined to go and rebuke Nabal. Quite a stern rebuke. Usually cutting people's heads off and stabbing them with swords, is, that's, that's a pretty strong rebuke. But you see, if you were to read the rest of the story, you'd find out that Abigail beseeches David and said, My Lord, if you let this worthless man provoke you to do this, you will regret this the rest of your life. You will look back in your old age upon this day and you will realize what a foolish thing you did because you let this fool do this to you. Do you see how Abigail shows you Jesus? Isn't that exactly what Christ does? He comes and submits Himself to the will of the Father to save fools, worthless people who are determined to do whatever they want to do. And no one can talk to them. That's exactly the kind of people that Christ came to save. In the same token, Christ calls us when people provoke us. Wives, when your husbands provoke you to anger, He calls you to remember that He was beaten and scorned and abused without opening His mouth like a sheep led to the slaughter. That's what the Scripture tells us. That's what we need to begin to look at. And what I want you to begin to see then in this passage, if you kind of start to see what's happening with Abigail, this is what I want you to begin to see. You can be ordered to do things. You might even do them. But you will never really submit until your heart is enraptured by an object greater than your idols. And the reason why you struggle to submit is because you are committed to yourself. You are not committed to... Because see, Abigail could have done the submissive thing. She could have pulled her robes around her and said, that's what my husband wants to do. But see, that would not have really been looking out for her husband's best interest, which is a submissive wife she was called to do. See, submission calls you to do the thing which actually brings grace and peace into your homes. That does not mean that you subvert. It just means that you're willing to say, Lord, you've called me to serve this man. And now we come to the big punchline. See, here's the punchline at the end of this passage. Wives, submit to your husbands in the Lord. That's the punchline. You have a great king. Do you not believe he knows how to take care of you? Do you not believe that even if your husband is foolish, that he doesn't have the ability to give you wisdom and understanding? As we look back into Ephesians chapter 5, remember it says that we're to walk in love. Do you not believe that you are loved even if your husband is a fool and doesn't know how to love you? Do you not believe that you walk in the light even if your husband continuously brings darkness into your world? 
Do you not believe that even if he acts the fool and plays the fool, that somehow the wisdom of a great king, Jesus, greater than Solomon, is not able to lead you and to care for you and to guide you in the paths that you should go? See, it is until you really believe that Jesus is a great king. And then the second part of the punchline of this, of this section here is that he himself, Jesus, is the savior of the church. Until you have a big view of a great Savior who even when things go awry, He is able to save you. That even when you don't submit like you, even when you fail to do the things you ought to, that's not the end of the story. You have a great King who guides you, leads you, cares for you, and you have a great Savior whose forgiveness is bigger than your temporal screw-ups and sins, and follies. And in in the measure that you even today are able to begin to grasp that and see how great Jesus is, how incredible a King and Savior He is, is the degree to which you begin to be able to put away your clutching after, well, what if this person doesn't care for my heart? Well, what if this doesn't go right? Well, what if this tanks us financially. Well, what if this? Well, what if this? Well, what if this? You will never put those away as a woman until you get a big view of Jesus. They will plague you and they will haunt you and they will wreck your marriage. Because a wise woman builds her house, but a foolish woman with her own hands tears it down. In conclusion then, at the beginning of the film of Ella Enchanted, she meets the prince of this enchanted land. She doesn't think much of him. And part of the reason why she doesn't think much of him is because his uncle is a rather worthless fellow and has been plaguing the creatures of the land and leading them into all types of wrong activities and oppressing them and enslaving them and all types of things. And Ella in her heart says that's just wrong. But over time, she runs into the prince and they begin to spend some time together. And the prince, who's heir to the throne, not his uncle, captivates Ella's heart. Now her wicked uncle finds out that Ella must do whatever she's told to do. And so he decides to use Ella to kill the prince and thereby arrest her to where he would be the natural heir to the throne. And Ella finds herself standing there in that, in that moment with the decision to make. Is the spell more powerful than what captivates her heart? For those of you who have seen the movie, you know that you see this great tense turmoil And you see Ella fighting. And finally the knife drops from her hands and she says, I will not go against my heart. And the spell is lifted. And for a moment it cost her. And I won't ruin the whole movie for those of you that may not have seen it. But at least that part you get. See, what happens there in a moment is that while the spell 
to do what this uncle has called her to do is great and strong. And it swayed on Elle's heart. When she finally caught a view of something greater, when she finally had a vision of something bigger than these petty objects of her affections, when she finally realized that she did not have to subdue herself under this spell, this tyranny, she was free. She was free to serve. And women, if you would see Jesus, if you would really believe that He will set all things right, if you will really believe that He will not lead you into a place that He is not going with you, you will be set free to live and to love a man who is fallible, who doesn't always make the right decisions, but you will be free to permeate His world with grace, which only comes from Christ, and peace, which can only be given by a great King. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.